If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your ancestor, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading today is from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The Gospel of Christ. Christ. As we are standing, please pray with me. Father, we pray to enter your rest to come out of the toil and futility of our restlessness. And in your rest, may we work for your mission in the world because your Son is at work and you and your Spirit are at work. 
to the end that all you've made may enter into your rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in a new chapter in John, and it's in chapter 5 that, that things begin to heat up for Jesus. See, in the previous chapters, Jesus was keeping a fairly low profile, even with his burgeoning fame from his travels and from the many signs that he had done. And then in our gospel reading that Valerie had read, the time has come for Jesus to go public, right in the center stage in Jerusalem at the temple, and he confronts the religious institution of his day, which then kicks off the controversy surrounding his identity, not only of his own claim as the Messiah, but as the one who claimed to also be God. Now, this would, in the end, of course, lead to his own demise. So this portion in chapter 5 is a turning point. It's a hinge point in the gospel because it's the time that Jesus deliberately invites opposition from his own religious leaders as they crash into one another at the collision point that is about the Sabbath. This is about the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath means rest in Hebrew. It was the holiest day of each week when the Jewish people rested from their work. They observed Sabbath Sabbath because God himself rested from his work after he made the universe within a time frame understood to be a seven-day work week. Now, when God rested, it wasn't understood that he needed a break. It was that he ceased. He stopped working of creating because creation on the seventh day, on Saturday as it were, had stopped. It's complete. It's perfect. So on the seventh day, God stopped creating. He inspected his work, and he was satisfied with it. He called it very good. He was content with his own work. And so with that, he blessed the seventh day as a day of rest and satisfaction and contentment. So Sabbath, yes, it's about ceasing and stopping from your work just as God stopped working. But more than that, Sabbath is living into the satisfaction living into the contentment of your own work, just as God himself did so. He looked at his work, and he was content with it. He was satisfied with it. So that's, that's Sabbath in a nutshell. So with that, I invite us to turn now to our bulletins, into our gospel reading. Now we read in verse 1. It was a Jewish feast day. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was an occasion for Jesus to be in Jerusalem. So he visits a pool called Bethesda. It means house of outpouring in Aramaic. Now it says there by John that it was enclosed by these five roof porches. It was situated in the northeast of the temple, just outside the walls, uh, close to the sheep gate. That's where people brought in their sheep for sacrifice. Now, scholars had earlier thought that the pool of Bethesda was just made up because no one at the time would have built a rather impractical design of five partitions like that of a pentagon. That's a pretty impractical design. It took up way too much space. But then excavations uncovered the site where the pool was and found the structure was not so much of a pentagon but a domino, right? There's a partition in between that bisected, in fact, the enclosed pool into two, the north and south pool. Now at the time, John had recorded this very popular belief at the time that an angel would, in fact, visit the pool seasonally especially during feast days, to stir up the water, and then whoever was first in the pool, whenever the water was stirred, would be cured from whatever malady they had. 
Now, the people didn't know that the pool would naturally bubble up, as they found later on from the intermittent springs that channeled through the underground cisterns that fed the pool. But regardless, the people held the belief, the popular belief, that the bubbling waters were supernatural. It was magic, as it were. That's why in verse 3, that a crowd of people who were ill, who were disabled, they were always around the pool. They were competing and climbing over each other to be first whenever they saw signs that the water started to bubble up. That was the understanding. So here comes Jesus. He visits, visits the pool. And among the multitudes, he approaches a man who suffered from some kind of paralysis or maybe debilitating weakness. We don't know exactly. And then Jesus asks, asks the man what seems to be a rather patronizing question for someone who has suffered and is suffering for a very long time. At the end of verse 6. Do you want to be healed? It sounds condescending. But it's one of Jesus' elliptical remarks that's meant to pierce through the obvious. You cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. If you knew who's asking you for water, you'd rather be asking him and he'd give you living water. Have food to eat you don't know about. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. See, Jesus has made all these audacious remarks, but he is actually prodding at something beyond what we humans could perceive in the earthly realm. So Jesus asks that man, that rather patronizing question, do you want to be healed? Of course the man wants to be healed. He's been there for 38 years, right? That was the popular belief. I'd want to be cured. But the man's response in verse 7, it uncovered a hidden malady, a deeper malaise, in fact, in his own spirit. See, the man didn't answer the question. He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, someone else steps down before me. He didn't answer the question. Again, yes, he wants to be healed, but he couldn't answer in the affirmative. Instead, perhaps feeling that Jesus had rudely awakened him again to the mess that he's in, the man vented. He grumbled about his predicament. And he collapses, as it were, inwardly from the weakness of his own resolve, showing symptoms that he too was sick with something else. He was sick with despair, with restlessness. I mean, let's put ourselves, excuse me, into this man's situation. He had no bodily strength to make and act on his own decisions. And so he had a severe lack of options. At some point, he learned about the magic pool. So he holds out hope for this magic cure. His entire life became his commute in and out of the pool each day. He likely relied on the goodwill of only a few very trusted friends to transport him. And his entire hope was for this very astronomically unlikely chance of him being the first into the pool whenever the waters bubbled up. He did this for almost four decades. This would crush anyone inwardly. It's a miracle how he kept on for this long. Now, this was in the backdrop of a Sabbath feast day. A whole history of Sabbath it was on a feast day. It was a Sabbath. So here is a man who has no rest, whose work became toil for 38 years, collecting only the dust of futility, collecting the fruits of despair. 
Now, originally, work was not toil. Human work was never this of a, a struggle, toilsome. Labor was not a struggle. See, in the beginning, work was good. It was a divine vocation. Work was an artistic occupation. Work was God painting on a blank canvas of nothing with everything. When God made people, he, we were to reflect his image on earth as workers, as artists, as cultivators of heaven on earth in the Garden of Eden. But sadly, we decided to collaborate, not to collaborate with God at all, and we branched out on our own. So we decided to, be, to go separately. But with that, the ground everywhere began to grow spikes and thorns by our blood and sweat. Now we ate food until we returned back to the ground, only to participate as dust for the bearing forth of more spikes and thorns from the soil. And for ages, for ages, for ages, human labor is our attempt to stave off chaos and decay, our attempt to shut the ravenous mouth of death. All of our work is like the taming of the seas, the lassoing of the winds and the harpooning of the waves just to pull at them. And in our toil and futility today, we hold out hope we hold out hope for the popular belief that wealth and money will cure our poverty, that entertainment our grief, beauty our self-hatred, knowledge our ignorance, success our sense of failure, and science and technology our mortality and aging. We are each laying by our magic pools all the days of our life, waiting, as it were, for that opportunity when the waters begin to bubble and we will compete and climb over each other so that we can be the first inside. But then the same Jesus comes to each one of us and asks that same rude awakening question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to rest? Do you want not to toil anymore or struggle to be satisfied? Do you want to be content to experience joy and peace? Do you want to be healed of futility, of vanity? Do you want to be healed of despair and death? Unless you're born again, unless you drink from me the living water, unless you eat the food of my Father's will, unless you apprehend my true Zoe life and find Sabbath rest in me, you cannot be healed. This is Jesus' claim. And this is presently what he offers each one of us as we sit, as we are at home. So then in verse 8, Jesus told the man to get up, carry your bed, and walk. So the man did. He was completely restored. And, and then almost immediately, the man caught the attention of the Jewish leaders. Not because he was unbelievably walking after 38 years, but because he was carrying something on the Sabbath. The leaders reprimanded him. Oh, it's not, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. That's so ironic. They've seen a miracle, but they were so incensed by his carrying something on the Sabbath. Those were their priorities. Now, the leaders were, of course, right, only because there was this established rabbinic tradition that prescribed extra laws around the Sabbath that were not original to the Old Testament. Now, the original law from Moses, it was understood in the Sabbath as a prohibition of work, that is, of your customary employment. That is, work was related to your day job. 
But the rabbinic traditions expanded that further and went to prohibit even the exertion of physical energy. So, as it were, in their laws, carrying something was an exertion of energy, so that was prohibited on the Sabbath. So the man who was healed deflected the blame. He deflected the blame on Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was at the time. The man who healed me told me to carry my mat. Apparently, there wasn't any time for introductions when the two met, so nothing came of it. But then, much, not much later on, inside the temple, which was just south of the pool, Jesus finds the man again. It was a second encounter. This time, Jesus speaks plainly about the man's, in ours, our deeper disease, the inner illness, as it were, in verse 14. See, you're well. Sin no more. That's nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus referred to the sickness of the heart, which is the same sickness in every one of us, in me. Now, Jesus wasn't suggesting here that each moral failure causes suffering. Although, yes, we know vices do have natural consequences. Rather, Jesus, in his foreknowledge, was warning the man of, about that his 38-year illness was related to a particular sin he was doing. Now, we don't know what that sin was. But rather, that wasn't the point. But Jesus was bringing to the man's attention his moral and spiritual health as something to be mindful of just as he had been very mindful of his own physical restoration for so long. Now here's the fundamental point here that Jesus was making. Sin is ultimately the futility of our toil. Sin is the frustration of our labor. Sin is the saboteur of our every effort. It is. Like, you know that time back in John 3, Nicodemus, the problem isn't out there. Problems aren't, they're not the Romans. The problem's in you, in me, it's inside everyone. And like with the Samaritan woman, the problem isn't dehydration. It was spiritual thirst, being parched and dry from God. You need to drink the living water. Like the official son was dying, the problem wasn't losing a loved one. It's about spiritual death. You must have faith to apprehend life. So is this with this man? It's not an illness of the body. It's the restlessness of our own souls that cocoon us into a repeated despair cycle. We're just reaping futility. That's the problem. Now, we don't know what became of this man, right? We know what happened to Nicodemus, the woman, the official. They all had faith. But we don't know if this man believed in Jesus right afterwards. But instead, the man hurries back to the Jewish authorities to identify who Jesus was. So this wraps up now the conflict because of what this man did. He told the authorities who Jesus was. Now, we don't know his motives, but his actions precipitated again the conflict between the institution and Jesus. For the Jewish leaders, someone who encourages and teaches someone to break the rabbinical laws was a greater threat than someone who broke it. So here began the Jewish oppression, the Jewish leaders' oppression and persecution of Jesus. Now finally, in response, Jesus makes his defense in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Again, this is under the backdrop of a Sabbath. And Jesus insisted that he must be working just as his father is working. 
Now, according to that same laws in the rabbinical traditions, it was taught that only God, only God was exempt from the Sabbath, even though he rested from creation. That is, God is always at work to sustain creation, even though creation is done. So if God were to observe Sabbath, they taught that the universe would collapse. God is the only one who must keep working, who always must be at work, even on the Sabbath. So Jesus was obviously implying that he's God. And because of this, the next verse, which isn't part of our reading today, it said that the Jewish leaders were all the more seeking to kill Jesus, not just because he broke the Sabbath, but he said that he's God. Now Jesus wouldn't be guilty of these if what he claimed was true. As we will see throughout this series, Jesus will authenticate his claim as God by doing the works of God And we know the ultimate work of God. That is, he is to suffer and die on the cross with a crown of spikes, a crown of thorns that grew from the soil and was crowned upon his head that he made then his brow pierced with blood and sweat carrying our diseases on the Sabbath as it were, carrying our sins, carrying our death. Jesus' journey to the cross was toilsome labor doing the new work of the new creation. He tamed the seas. He leashed the winds by the word of his mouth. He shepherded chaos and he pulled back at decay. Then he died to shut the mouth of death and he rose again on the eighth day. It's a new work week, an eternal Sabbath rest of God for his people that we may work from God's rest, his satisfaction, his contentment, his delight over all things. So today... We who are in Jesus can work. We can now work and minister in the Sabbath rest that Jesus had worked and died for. Our labor is never in vain, never futile, never useless, never for nothing. As new creatures, we reflect the image of Jesus in the world as workers of the resurrection, artists of the new world, cultivators of new creation, bring about heaven on earth in his name. So this morning we'll be witnessing the baptism of Akko by the pool of consecrated water. It's not a magic pool. The waters are not somehow stirred up by an angel overhead. But the water is consecrated as a signpost by our collective prayers. It's an ordinary means to signal God's extraordinary grace for Akko so that in baptism the promise of God's Sabbath rests may rest upon her, may be given to her, and that eventually in her life she may take it by choice in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we will together later on reaffirm these vows as well in the baptismal pool as Akko is baptized. So let's together with Akko and her family strive, let's work in our vocation. It's a new vocation, it's a new work of the new creation as we delight in the rest that we have in Jesus. Because the Father is always at work. Jesus is always at work. The Spirit is constantly at work in us, even now to bring heaven into earth until all things come into the rest of God. So let's too be at work, working out of the delight, the satisfaction, the contentment of the Sabbath rest we have in Jesus, to the glory and honor of his name. Amen.
You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.